Hi everyone, um, great to be here on the Slush Builder Studio today. As the introduction there, I'm going to talk a little bit about term sheets and unpack um, some of the things which I think are important to know. So to kind of kick things off, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know, why I'm in front of you today and you know, why it's not someone else giving this talk. Um, firstly, you know, a little bit about SeatCamp. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a partner there and you know, SeatCamp, as was alluded to before, we're a, a pre-seed and seed stage focused VC. We're sector agnostic. We're investing all across Europe. Um, we're investing between generally in the range of 250 to 500,000 pounds into um, as an initial check into founders. And we're leading pre-seed investing at seed stage um, companies. The, the, I think the introduction talked about 350 companies. But actually, we've been fortunate to partner and back um, 400 companies now over 14 years. And there's some um, logos which I put on the side there. I think you can spot that there's seven of those companies which have passed now kind of unicorn status and um, billion dollar valuations. Two of them have gone public in, in UiPath and Wise. And one, the odd one out, is a Helsinki-based seed stage company, which I had to give a shout out to um, in Flowrite, maybe one for the future. And so as the intro alluded to, prior to SeedCamp, um, you know, I, I, I've, so I've been at SeedCamp for seven and a half years. And before that, um, I was a lawyer working across some of these um, areas in, in VC and PE law. Also, in case anyone wants to talk to me about anything afterwards, I'm a recent dad, and unfortunately, I'm a long-suffering Newcastle United fan. Um, so I don't know if anyone um, following the Premier League, but we're not doing too well at the moment. Cool. So um, what we want to talk about in this session, um, which this obviously slide alludes to and the intro is talking about as well, is I want to unpack kind of like the key elements of a term sheet. Obviously, we've got like 27 minutes to, to go through stuff, so this is quite a lot to go through. Um, what to look out for. And then in particular, trying to kind of weave in some more stories throughout. So, you know, there's a lot of things, I think, that as investors, actually the majority of the things that we interact with with founders, where founders and the companies and the people who are building them, you guys know so much more than us about. Um, whereas I think the small number of things which maybe we have more in interactions with are around fundraising and, um, and legals and the like. So hopefully my goal is to try and pass on some of that knowledge um, during this session. And why is this important? Um, yeah, I, I love this picture because what I, what I say when it comes to legals and it comes to setting things up, it's prevention is better than the cure. You know, I think that if you can set your kind of legal processes up in your term sheets in the right way at the very beginning, then it's a lot easier than trying to fix that afterwards. It's a lot cleaner. It's a lot faster. It's a lot more cost effective. I mean, I think that, that proves this, um, this picture. I think if they just tied those container ships um, down correctly, then it would be a lot easier than doing the cleanup. Great. So to kick things off, I think that you know the, the word term sheet has been kind of banded around a lot. I know the talk before was going into fundraising, and Carlos has got one coming after me, which goes into fundraising. And it's often the kind of end of the fundraising process. It's almost like we're doing our talks in, backwards. Is is the kind of term sheet? It's something you hope to get. It's kind of the the the, the thing at the very end, um, which. Hopefully, you'll have kind of like competing numbers of those from various different investors. But what is it and what does it look like? So I wanted to put this picture up just to say, you know, this is a kind of standard looking term sheet, but also that it talks about, um, which, which has the kind of watermark there, which I'd recommend everyone go check out, is seedsummit.org. That's an initiative that, which we kind of helped to spearhead in connection with a number of other VCs, um, funds, and actual lawyers to open source a lot of legal documents. Um, and so that's a good chance for you to go and actually 
download some term sheets, have a look at some of the terms which are in those, and even use them as a basis for um, starting kind of like discussions if that's, if that's helpful. But in terms of what they look like and how long they are and all this kind of stuff, I've seen term sheets like that are for rounds of between 100, 150 million dollars, which are one, one or two sides. I mean, there is you know, no real logic to that. Um, but then I've seen kind of term, term sheets for smaller rounds of you know, two million dollars, which could be eight to 10 sides. So there's, in terms of length, it varies a lot. I think there's definitely a trend towards them becoming you know, slightly smaller and shorter, even for those larger rounds. Um, and then also the kind of thing to flag is, generally speaking, the majority of it is classed as kind of non-legally binding. There might be a couple of clauses in there, often things like confidentiality or no-shop clause, which may actually be um, legally binding and defined as so. But the, the idea behind it is, even if it's not legally binding, you as a founder, once you go into that position of actually signing a term sheet, I think that it's morally binding, right? It is something that you have committed to and that you are like moving forward with going to kind of do a deal. And that's the same with investors as well. You know, I don't think... As investors, this should, it's incredibly bad form to go back on something which you've agreed, and particularly once you've got to the point of signing. So whilst it might be legally binding, it, it's definitely morally binding, which I think this, this picture nicely sums up. So kind of turning from what is a term sheet to what is in a term sheet, again, for the purposes of this you know, talk of 20 minutes to go, I've tried to kind of simplify it and put it into three broad buckets of what you'd expect to see. So I think you'd expect to see a clause and areas which cover economics, areas which cover investor protections, and areas which cover governance. And there are obviously other stuff in there, but they're the three things which I think we've got enough time to, to really go into and start to unpack today. So my idea is here that I'm going to go into each of these, pull out a couple of the clauses, and then give some ideas of what to think about and what to look for if you're approaching this when you've got a term sheet and you're perhaps investing. So I'm, again, like you know, giving some tips away that might be used against me at some point but happy to. So firstly, and I think, you know, when we do think about this, it's probably the one which is most important, the economics, okay, the, the valuation. It's, if you can't agree the commercials of this, it kind of doesn't make sense to go into the nitty gritty of some of the other stuff that we'll get to during this talk. So it's definitely the thing to agree up front. But even when you're agreeing it, I think there's some terms which can be helpful to understand exactly what they mean. And so that, again, you're in the best possible position to, to, to go through and actually kind of finalize some of these points. So when we talk about valuation, there are lots of terms which get knocked around, but I think the, the couple which it's good to, to really just highlight what the difference is, are both like pre-money and post-money. So usually you'll see a valuation which is often pre-money and the post-money will be taking that number, so say it's like $6 million or something, and then adding the round size. So say you were raising $2 million and you would get to $8 million as the post. Now that's important because it's very important when you start to think about dilution and how you're treated as founders and what you're actually giving away in the company. Because if you think a pre is a post, then you know, the numbers could be like, materially different. So super important thing to have like, top of mind when you're reading them and discussing them and even talking with investors prior to maybe signing anything. The other thing which I know there's been a discussion on and a talk on already is the idea of option pool. Um, obviously, what an option pool is, is it's carving out part of your cap table to make available for future hires incredibly important um, provision that, that we, we think that can be a real material change in terms of how you can bring on fantastic talent. That's something which is also usually contained within this broad economics because they all interact, which I'll come to in a moment. And then finally, round size. We spoke about that before. Usually the investor will kind of cap how much they 
want you to raise and might even put a minimum amount how, about how much you need to raise before that you can kind of move forward with um, closing out the round. So important kind of like pieces within the economics umbrella or bucket to, to unpack. Now, in all of this, what I'd recommend um, is that, you know, the cap table is your friend, as I talk there. I think the best founders, and I'm having kind of, you know, a conversation this week with a founder who's got multiple offers and is trying to understand the difference of them, is if you understand your cap table, if you understand exactly the, you know, the shares that you've issued, the ownership, which is coming from a previous round, or if your founders, just how you split across, and the differences between if you accept this offer versus this offer, and you can move quickly through those, it just puts you in such a stronger position to be able to negotiate well with, with the people who you're negotiating with. So I think CapTable is incredibly important. If you are um, you know, interested in learning more about CapTable, we did a video series, um, my colleague Felix and, and Carlos, um, called Felix on Cap Tables. So if you go to the SeedCamp website, you can see a lot more detail there. Oh, something's going on with the, the, the slides, but I'm sure they'll get fixed. Um, so this should say what to look out for. And so what to look out for within these. So valuation, we spoke about it a little bit just before in terms of like founded, so I think there's three things. So in each of the what to look out for, is I'm going to try and summarize it with three things. So I'd say valuation, there's always a temptation to go for the highest valuation, right? And I think the number one thing you should be thinking about is your dilution. You know, you don't really want to be diluting more than 20, maybe up to 25% maximum at the earliest stages in the rounds that you're raising at seed and series A because you want to be going forward from there in a position where you still have a, a significant um, stake in the company because you're building the biggest value. So that's an incredible, incredibly important thing to kind of optimize for in one way. But then equally, you don't want to, this is where the next two points come in. So that one is to push the valuation high. And again, talking against myself, because you know, as investors, we might not be on that side of the negotiation. But the next two points, I think, are just things to consider as you try to optimize for that one. And they are the momentum to close, so if you agree with your um, what's going on here, if you agree with your uh, investor that a high kind of lead amount, then you still might have a, a proportion to fill of that round, and you don't want to have that number too high so that you can't close out the rest. So say if you agree a 25 million valuation, and the investor is going to put in half, but if you can't find the rest of that money to fill it in, then you're going to slow down the whole process. And there's nothing worse than a slower kind of a slower fundraise. So momentum to close is important when thinking about optimizing valuation. The other thing is growing into your valuation. You know, some of the things which we'll come to later talk about what happens if you raise at a higher valuation than the next round. So I would just say that it's good to kind of pitch it at a level that allows you to grow in kind of about three times probably larger at the next fundraise, which you do in 12 to 18 months time. So again, you know, if you're at the absolute edge of what you can get, just be aware that people are going to be looking at the next round and making sure that you're kind of growing into that because you do not want to go down the route of a down round. So next up, that's the slide looks warm, which is nice considering the weather outside. Uh, so option pool, you know, we spoke about it before. I think the things when I'm, you know, speaking to founders and they've got offers that they're considering and thinking about are, the size of that option pool, the hiring plan that they have in place, and, and when it's set up, and I'll come to that in a moment. So the size, you know, again, I, I think it's incredibly important to not be too on the small side here, because I think it's a great way, as I said before, for you to be able to incentivize really important hires. Um, the way that you would potentially negotiate this to a smaller level than might 
the investor might want is to walk through the hiring plan. If you've got a very complete team and then, you, and then they're asking for you to blow out your option pool to 15, 20%, then it's perfectly reasonable for you to go back and say, look, I already know who I've got in place. I already know who I want to hire. And this is the period of time which I'm going to do that. And therefore, you know, the option pool should be lower. Because effectively, that is a way that they are kind of manipulating the valuation there. So I think that whilst option pool is incredibly important, mapping that to your hiring plan and the specific needs of your company is also a really, really good way to, to think about how you can you know, put that into a place which everyone is, is comfortable with. And then the when it's set up is a bit of the kind of, the, you know, a bit cheeky in terms of what this means for evaluation because typically the option pool comes pre the actual new investors coming into the round. That means that you as founders and existing investors, which obviously as an early stage investor, this happens to us, where the dilution of that option pool setup or expansion. Now, it's another point which can potentially be negotiated in certain circumstances where you could say, you know, maybe half of it comes pre and some of it comes post. But just to make people aware that it is quite typical that it comes pre and the investors aren't diluted by it. But it's just something, again, where a real clear understanding of your cap table can give you a massive edge because it really allows you to be able to move quickly and understand all these things. So my idea is just to try and impart any of that knowledge I can. So that kind of covers a lot of the, what we want to talk about, about economics. Obviously, there's loads more on, on valuation and things, but I think you know, Carlos might touch upon some of that in his fundraising talk and, and how to optimize for that. But I want to also touch upon some investor protections because there's some clauses here which, even if the goal is just to introduce them, and we go into some more detail on um, a series that, that Carlos and I actually did. It's a bit of a double act called Legal Hour, which is, again, available on Seacamp's um, website. So I'd go check that out if you want some more kind of like details. But I want to just go into um, kind of some of the key terms and what they mean. So these are some words which get knocked around a lot. And I just want to try and unpack those. And then we're going to talk about two of these in um, the time we've got. And then we'll, we'll do a little bit on governance. So in terms of some of these key terms and what they mean, Participation rights, that might be something that can sometimes be called pro rata rights, can sometimes be called kind of preemption rights or get interchangeably, but participation rights for the purpose of this. What that means is that's your investor or the person who's invested in your company's right to continue to invest at future rounds to protect that stake. So for instance, you know, for an example, at Seedcamp, we're, you know, we're a little bit unusual. We target between 5 and 7% as an ownership stake in the companies we invest in. But we want to be able to protect that stake at future rounds. So we want to be able to do, if we're investors in the, in the pre-seed, you know, we want to be able to invest the, to protect that stake in the seed round, the series A, and perhaps beyond. You know, in some of the companies like the Hoppins of this world where we came in super early, that's been you know, incredibly important for us to be able to follow on in those winners. And so that's what participation rights means, and, it, and it's very important. We're going to come in in a, in a bit about some things to consider and to think about as founders with regards to that. The next term, which I think is incredibly important, is the vesting investing schedule. It's super important for you as founders to obviously understand what vesting investing schedule is because this is the mechanic, the, the vesting, that entitles you know, the company or you to have to return your shares in the event that you leave as a founder. So obviously, it can be super material in terms of what it can mean to, to your equity stake. So again, a very, very important thing. And the vesting schedule itself is often over a period of time. I think the most typical thing that we see now is that vesting takes place over four years and often there is some form of a cliff, maybe about a year, and then you catch up at 25% and then vest kind of regularly on from that. But again, we're going to go into that in a little bit more detail in another slide. Two other points which I want to touch upon, which I'm not going to go into too much detail about, but you should 
if you want to read anything more, there's some um, stuff available which I've blogged on these topics before. So one is the liquidation preference. That's a right which investors typically get to receive their, um, their kind of investment amount back in the event, um, in advance of other investors in the event the company sells for below the valuation they got in at. So that's a downside protection in the event there's a sale, which is pretty low, to be honest. Um, and it's something which is very common if it's a one-times non-participating preferred. Again, if you kind of Google um, liquidation preference, Tom Wilson, you'll, you'll get a, a post which goes into more detail than I can cover in a few minutes on stage. Um, and then the last point is anti-dilution, which is another super important one as a downside protection when you think about if you raise that high valuation. So we talked before about watching out for a down round. It's clauses like this that really kick in when you go for um, a super high valuation and then unfortunately potentially have to raise a lower valuation. It, what it means is it, it's a provision which allows for those investors who invested the high valuation to be compensated so that they're not in a lower position. They haven't taken any dilution, even if you've raised at a lower um, valuation subsequent to that. So they don't feel in this market where you know, everything's up and to the right and there's just like you know, an abundance of capital that they're necessarily going to kick in. But if... And you should always be thinking a little bit about this. You know, the market does change. Then clauses like anti-dilution are, are obviously going to come into effect. But again, it's not unusual for them to be in there. So what to look out for? Now, I'll come to the kind of the, the, the logic of the, the background of the stag picture. But what we're talking about here in terms of participation rights is I think some of the things to unpack and think about. Number one is your investor's fund model. So understanding what they actually want to do. Like I spoke before about Seedcamp and how we think about participation rights. Super important for us. But we're not trying to like build ownership generally. We're, we get our ownership when we come in. We're happy with our 6 or 7% or sometimes on the lower end of that. And we'll continue to invest to kind of protect that position in future rounds where we can. You know, we're not a massive fund. So there's, there's other, other times when that um, gets challenging. But some other investors might have a different fund model. They might start with a small stake and want to build it. They might be that they're a multi-stage fund who doesn't do much at the stage which you're investing if, if you're raising a seed round. And so then it's important, okay, well, what, if you understand that, it's like, what does that mean for the next round if they don't lead that next round, for instance? So all of these things and how they interact, it's you know, just kind of putting these ideas out there so that you can research that. And to be honest, so that you can just ask the question to your investor. You know, you don't have to have the answers to these. You don't have to have figured it out. You just have to have like an honest and open conversation. And it's the start of a long-term relationship when you sign a term sheet. So everyone should have that kind of honest and open conversation about some of these points. Other things to look out for when we're talking about participation rights or preemption rights or, or whatever we want to call them. Another clause is super preemption. That's the idea that if, say, in Seacamp's example, we started with 6% and we could have a super preemption right in there which allows us to invest as if we were 10%. Now, we, we don't typically ask for that. Um, and it's something that I'd probably, if I was a founder, I'd advise against you kind of like going into because it just can create more signaling problems because then people at the next round will look at it and go, well, did they do their super preemption? Did they not do their super preemption? Why didn't they do it? And it just creates, you know, another layer of things to, to or questions to answer. So it's not a, you know, it's not a walk away term. But again, it's just something I think in, in an ideal world with all of this, you want to try and keep it as clean and as standard as possible. So I think moving away from that, whilst you can be creative between each other, and I think that I'm all for creativity, I think sometimes it's good to keep things as standard as possible. But I don't want to let you into kind of like a little secret in terms of like 
participation rights and what happens in real life. So, you know, you've given these rights, investors have them, investors can, you know, legally um, follow on to the, to the stake that they've got in the company. The reality is, and this is where the kind of picture of the stag comes in, like in this market in particular, and I'm you know, speaking from experience, we've been in the fortunate position to back some companies which have gone on and had highly oversubscribed rounds after us or Series A rounds or Series B rounds even, that investors have to earn the right pretty much to be able to do that, to, do, to continue to invest in the company. I do believe that where investors have delivered on the promises which they've offered to you as founders, then I think it's great and I think it's really good practice going to that kind of moral connection for you to allow those investors to at least participate up to their kind of pro rata, so their, their percentage. And in exceptional circumstances where investors have come in and said, look, we didn't get a full allocation that we wanted to on the first round, we actually would love to be a bit higher, then I think it's okay also to even give them a little bit more. But I think the key here is that you earn the right, in my view, to, to be able to do that because you, know, you as founders are doing the hard work. Next one I want to talk about, um, and I couldn't resist as someone in the VC industry trying to get a, a picture of a Patagonia guest, um, vest as a background, is vesting and why I think it's you know, probably one of the most important clauses in there. I think that this section almost about investor protections is a bit misleading here because I actually think that vesting is as much a founder protection mechanism as it is an investor one. I think that you know, this idea of giving back your shares is hugely emotional and I totally, totally get it. And I've had this conversation with countless founders when they see it there and they're like, hold on a second, you know, we've built value in the company. If I leave after a year, is it right that I don't leave with anything? And I'm like, the way I would phrase it is, it's not thinking it from that, but it's thinking it from, okay, if there's three founders and one of those founders, and it's something that happens, you know, we've been fortunate to back, you know, 400 companies over 14 years and we have seen founder fallouts countless times. And if you don't have vesting in place, the idea that one of those founders would leave with a third of the company and then the other two founders would just continue to generate value, which this founder also benefits from, can be an incredibly toxic situation. So that's why I think of it as almost like a protection amongst founders as much as you know, a protection for investors as well that they're you know, investing in this collective group for a period of time. So that's a, it just an interesting kind of mindset to think about. The other thing I'd say is this idea of starting the clock now. If you're starting a business, if you're at the earliest possible stage, I'd recommend, again, checking out seedsummit.org. Um, there's a founder collaboration agreement there. Get something in place, even if it's not legal, even if it's not super fancy. Start the kind of vesting clock now for two reasons. One, for the number one point there, to protect against someone leaving and having a claim for a stake in the company. Two, for this start the clock, it might mean that when you go to those, found, those first round of institutional investors who will 100% put this in place, I've never seen an institutional fundraising round with any VC not have vesting in in some capacity, they will ask usually for you to start again. But it might be that if you say, well, we've actually had it in place for a year or we've actually had it in place for six months, they might say, well, okay, let's honor that. Let's stay in for six months. So you're in an actually better position if you started earlier. The last thing I'd think about, again, with vesting is you know, something I'm quite, quite passionate about and written about a bit before because I think it's super important, is this idea of it's a long-term game. You know, I think you want to, as much as possible, stack and think about all of these terms in terms of is this, the outcome is pretty binary, right? You're either going to be successful, wildly successful, and I hope everyone in this room is going to be wildly successful, or it's, you know, it's not going to work out. So you want to put these things in place with a view to that rather than to optimize for things which might happen in between, like, someone leaves or someone steps away. So I think if you approach with this long-term game, you approach it with this founder protection mindset, I think that the vesting clause is incredibly important and makes a ton of sense.
So the last one we want to, I want to quickly um, cover in the, in the three minutes or so I've got left is governance. So there's lots we could do here, but I'm going to talk quickly about board composition, so who and what are on your board. Um, information rights, what that is, is just a provision where your investors receive information in the company, like legally. I think it's incredibly important as well, because I think that for you to get the most out of your investors, you want to be as open with information as possible so that they are most informed, because constantly you know, we're talking to the next stage of investor for the company. And I feel like my job partly is just to kind of like pitch the companies which we've already invested in to them. And if I'm super informed, it allows me to be a better kind of like salesperson on behalf of the founders we back. So it's kind of how I'd think about information rights. Consent rights, obviously the idea that certain decisions might be reserved. I just keep that to stuff which doesn't in any way inhibit you to run the company. And I think that outside of that, they should be pretty uncontroversial. So the final what to look out for section is on board composition. Again, nice kind of tropical theme here, which is so suitable for slush. Um, so this is this idea that I'm going to kind of focus this last bit on if it's a seed stage business, so if it's an early stage business, because I pretty, feel, again, pretty passionate about at least some of these points. Size really matters when you come to boards. Firstly, you don't necessarily need a board. If you're a pre-seed company, I'd say you probably don't. Most of the companies we work with, yes, we have the right as a fund to be a board observer. We don't take direct seats, but I don't think you necessarily need one. I think you want a good group of people who you can rely upon. But I think that if we are going into the world of boards, size matters. You want to keep them small. Um, you know, don't go around kind of like throwing board seats for everyone because I think that it's just administratively harder and you won't get as much out of that group of people if it's large. Stage matters. I'd say I would optimize for people who are experienced about working with companies at your stage. So if you're at a seed stage, you know, they're, they're seed investors, they're early stage angels who've been in your shoes, they're founders who've been in your shoes. Don't bring on board like, you know, big execs from late stage because they'll be fantastic for that stage of your growth, but they won't be and it could be harmful for the other stage. And the final point, I'd say frequency. Don't let like an investor come in and say, you've got to have eight, 10 boards a year or something crazy like that. You've got a million and one things to do as founders, which are incredibly important, incredibly time consuming. Only use the board in a way that can be helpful for you because that's what we're all here for. We're just here to kind of be supportive to you guys as founders because you're doing the hard work and um, building the real value. So I think with that, that's all I wanted to cover with 50 seconds to go. Um, so that's my 27 minutes on Term Sheets 101. Thank you very much.